can design help communities adapt to global crisis? We believe that design is the catalyst for positive change. Design is the difference maker. It's Thursday, February 15th, the birthday of Galileo, Ernest Shackleton, and Susan B. Anthony. But it's also Science Friday. I'm sci-fi producer Charles Bergquist. Over the past few years, we've seen cities around the world change dramatically as a result of the COVID pandemic, with shifts in office use, commuting patterns, and where people choose to live, work, and play. But there are other changes on the horizon as well, things like adapting communities to changing climate, sea level rise, and the move to alter our infrastructure away from dependence on fossil fuels. SciFry's John Dankosky spoke with two people who've been thinking a lot about that sort of change and how architecture and design can help communities adapt. Here's John. Andy Cohen and Diane Hoskins are co-CEOs of Gensler. It's a global architecture and design firm, and they're authors of a new book. It's called Design for a Radically Changing World. Welcome to Science Friday. Thanks so much for joining me. It's great to be here. Thanks so much, John. Okay, so Diane, Andy, you're you're both design people. What made you write this book? Wow, big question. As you were saying earlier, Andy and I, we lead a, a large and very influential architecture firm and design firm that works on, you know, thousands of projects. What started us down this path of of wanting to even write a book was frankly recognizing how many lives were impacted by the work we were doing. And through the airports, you know, that we design, through the workspaces that we design, the experiences that people have in the stadiums that we've designed over the years, and on and on and on. And realizing that we had an important role as we look at, you know, how do we make people's lives better? How do we, as a design firm, create a better world? And I'll add, John, that we're living in this time of radical change. We're facing wave after wave of compounding crisis from the pandemic we went through, climate change, uh, from economic volatility to geopolitical instability and social injustice. And our cities have been significantly impacted. What Diane and I called it in our book, we called it the crisis multiplier, the, the crises that we face today that are interconnected, laid, and accelerating. And we believe that design is the catalyst for positive change, that design is the difference maker. I want to talk about some of these big crises that we're in the middle of or that we've got coming down the pike. Some of these, like climate change, which you address quite a bit in the book, are things that we've been seeing for a long time. Design firms, architecture firms can look at climate change and say, okay, I can prepare for what that's going to look like in 20, 30, 40 years. When it comes to something like a pandemic like COVID that comes out of nowhere, you know, you started talking about this in 2019, but then only a couple months later, folks, the the world shuts down. So how does something like a pandemic change the way that you think about design and the way you put together communities? You know, here we were going to write a book and we were going to talk about the impact of design. And all of a sudden, bang, we're in COVID. But, you know, again, it's all about One, the fact that design is an important part of how you can impact people's lives and find solutions through these very, very complex issues. 
But also another really important overlay in our book is about how quickly these next and next and next crises, let's call them, are coming at us and how as designers, we are seeing a transformation in our process as well. That what was a very precedent-based uh, you know, profession, how was design done in the, in the past? You know, basically, we would take uh, you know, concepts and refine them and evolve them, but it wasn't as much about invention. And so, you know, again, how we now are as designers, we're going the other way around. We're doing deep research. We are recognizing that we're seeing new issues that need new solutions and not solutions from the past. This is totally upending what would have been the typical process of design. Resilience is a great example because, you know, we design buildings to a building code, right? That's based on a location, that's based on climate, that's based on, again, a precedent uh, review of conditions that have existed for decades, if not you know, beyond. All of that is now changing as well. When we are looking at designing buildings today, we have to look at what are the changes in the climate going to be in that place over the next hundred years? So literally projecting a future that has nothing to do with what was that precedent in the past and really, to your point, designing resilience based on whether it's about heat, whether it's about what's happening with sea level rise changing, whether it's about storms, all of this is really impacting our codes and we are having to get ahead of that using models, modeling systems that we've never used before, and really, again, anticipating, uh, we'll just use the example of how weather changes, but we're also now starting to say, we need to anticipate, frankly, different uses for buildings. You know, we can pivot to the, the fact that another crisis we're having right now is the fact that we have an overabundance of office space. A lot of, you know, again, because of the changes of how people are working, we have upward of 30% of office buildings in many of our cities are empty. And at the same time, we have a shortage of housing. And we're now doing a huge amount of evaluating of those kind of office buildings to see if they could be, you know, uh, residential and apartments. And so we're now starting to think in terms of design, how do we design buildings in general so that they can transform with the different needs of communities? But, you know, the reason that there's all that office space right now, in large part, is because so much about our workplace changed a couple of years ago with the pandemic. People found ways to work outside the office. And it became pretty clear that jamming a whole bunch of people together in a pandemic next to each other in an office wasn't the best possible thing for public health. So I'm wondering how you take that into account, too. All of these other factors, like changing weather and climate, of course, are things you need to prepare for. But there's also this thing that could happen at any time, like a disease outbreak, that means the design for getting people together needs to completely change. Now we need to be six feet apart or further. That is a great you know, arena of how design is changing. And, you know, I mean, we 
most certainly will have another pandemic of some sort someday, maybe not in our lifetimes, but hopefully um, generations to come can learn from what we learned. And this is something in our firm that we really uh, spent focused energy on helping our clients to understand how they could come back to the office, how they could work together. And it was really three key things. Separation, right? You know, six feet away or whatever that dimension was that gave, gave you some amount of safety. And it was touchless. How do we do a lot of the things we need to do in a space without having to touch the doorknobs or the elevator buttons or fixtures in restrooms and all of these sorts of things. And then the third thing, which actually now we're realizing is probably the number one, is airflow systems and how we can create filtering in our HVAC and other airflow systems, keeping uh, contaminants from, you know, transferring from person to person. But, you know, separation may be something that we found that we could probably let go of as we moved into a vaccinated world. But the ideas of touchless and better air filtration are actually things we're carrying forward. One of the other things, of course, that you tackle in your book is designing for transportation, how we get from one place to the other. I'm wondering how you're thinking about things like electric cars. If we're shifting away from internal combustion engines and many states have already put forward very aggressive plans to do just that within the next couple of years, what does that mean for the way that we are designed, the way that we arrange our communities, our buildings, the places that we, we drive to and from? You know, we can talk about multiple of layers of solutions. You mentioned transportation, but also this whole idea of mixed use design. And just to touch on that for a moment, you know, one of the, I don't know if I want to call it a mistake, but one of the things we have done in our cities is to have single use zoning in su such large parts of our cities. You have the residential area, you have the commercial area, you've got the retail area. And frankly, what that has created are cities that are less desirable by people. We, you know, have uh, as part of our Gensler Research Institute, we survey people in over 50 cities around the world. People want mixed use. People want that. It's been called 20 minute city or 15 minute city where you're able to get to those places that are important in your life with, you know, within a 20 minute or 15 minute time, rather than a one hour to get to everything and long commutes. So reintegrating the uses in our cities is something that is, uh, that we are focusing on and transportation is an important part of that as well. Andy, what do you think? So what you bring up, John, is very, very important about the future because our cities must evolve from a car first culture and must prioritize multimodal infrastructure. And that includes bike lanes, bus lanes, and safe mass transit. As far as the autonomous vehicle goes, it is gonna radically change the face of our cities and how they function. And it gives us the ability to take our city streets back for people. And we're seeing the future being where, for example, we won't need parking in cities. So imagine all the parking spaces say in a city like New York that can now be taken over and used for green space, public space, restaurant space, cafe space, but it won't be parking spaces. Diane also brought up the 20 minute city, 
which has been something that we have focused on post-COVID, the idea of accessibility to everything you need in a walkable environment, whether that's groceries or a cafe or, or healthcare, any amenity that you need in life, it, we found from our research is a 20-minute walkable city. And that could be a small city of 20 minutes, or it could be multiple 20-minute cities within a large city like New York or Los Angeles. So we believe the future is bright for our cities coming out of COVID because of all these potential uh, opportunities that we're seeing. On Radiolab. First, we thought we'd made some sort of mistake. Two surprisingly simple scientific discoveries. This is crazy. <laughs> I mean, we were just so surprised. That makes us reconsider our assumptions about progress. We need to learn the language of the doctors of that time. We need to be a little bit less dismissive. Staff retreat from Radiolab. I learned a bit of humility this way. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Before we run out of time, I, I, I should ask you, though, to maybe give us a, a specific example or two of the ways in which this work will get done. Uh, of the various cities that you profile in the book, one of them is is my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And the concept of just having some big builder come in and saying, this is the way we're going to design a city, isn't really going to probably work for the people who live there. So I'm wondering how you think the future is going to look in terms of these uh, buildings, these communities being designed, are they by architecture and design firms like yours, or are they by the communities of people who live there? You know, it's really both. And and that's one of the things that um, we talk about in the book is that, you know, when we talk about equitable design or design that, that really is for communities, and that we're talking about any community, that you have to include the voices of the people. We're really excited right now to uh, be involved in the design of the new Pittsburgh airport, which is a great example of what was, you know, a a really good airport. It was an international hub that decided we want to be a gateway to our community. We want to be connected to our community in a way we've never been connected before. And so we were brought on board to help them reimagine what that might look like. And it will be open in 2025. But again, you know, this idea of how do we embrace local voices and every project, you know, we believe in this idea of local and global, you know, bringing what we've learned, we bring that along with deep commitment to our local communities. In Pittsburgh, in the Lower Hill neighborhood, which has actually been the target of redlining, uh, you know, in decades past, and if if you're from Pittsburgh, you you know, you're aware of this. I'm from the south side of Chicago. I know exactly what that looks like, you know, where families were displaced and disrupted. You know, we're working on a new plan for this whole neighborhood, and it's going to be created for celebration of the site's, yes, unique physical characteristics, but also celebrating that community and supporting all of what we've been talking about with multimodal connectivity, spaces for people to come together and creating inclusive and accessible green space. We know that that is important as we're healing our communities. And, you know, Pittsburgh is one example of many as we're working around communities across the United States and the world. I'm wondering, um, 
if if you Andy if if you have a, a favorite city that just really jazzes you up like you see the things that they're doing you say yeah that's actually what I'm talking about thanks John I I, I would say that and it has everything to do with the future of cities that we were discussing before about having people at its core not cars at its core and a great city in the world is Copenhagen because Copenhagen is all about pedestrians it's all about you know creating a mixed-use environment where people can thrive. And it's less about the car. The cars are secondary. And I think it's a perfect example of cities of the future that we're seeing where we're going to be able to take our city streets back for people. How about you, Diane? Do you have one? You know, I have to say, I I love cities. One of the great perks of, of this job is that Andy and I get to visit so many cities uh, uh, around the world. We were just in Bangalore, uh, a tremendous city in India. It is so vibrant, and we're doing uh, some great work there and working with uh, communities, working with companies, and our team is is just amazing. But it was really, um, I would say, a, a really special moment arriving at the new Bangalore airport and really experiencing a design. It wasn't done by our firm, but a design that I I think really exemplifies a lot of what we're talking about as what design needs to do, which is to be authentic to its local community while bringing the best of global ideas and state-of-the-art design. And, you know, I, I always am just thrilled to see these kinds of, of design ideas, whether we designed it or another firm, And, you know, this is how we're going to create a better world. Andy Cohen and Diane Hoskins are co-CEO of the global architecture and design firm Gensler. And they're authors of a new book. It's called Design for a Radically Changing World. Thank you both so much for being with us here on Science Friday. Thank you so much, John. John, thanks so much for doing this. We love your program. Thank you so much for everything you do. That's it for today. Tomorrow, Ira checks in on some of the week's top stories in science. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. I'm David Remnick, and each week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts.